Some time ago, a fellow called Michael Hart wrote a book called The 100, a ranking of the most influential people in history. Uh, who do you reckon to be on that list? Who do you reckon to be right up the top? Well, surprise, surprise, number one is Muhammad. Muhammad, he says this, My choice of Muhammad to lead the list of the world's most influential persons may surprise some readers and may be questionable by others. But he was the only man in history who was supremely successful on both the religious and the secular levels. Today, 13 centuries after his death, his influence is still powerful and persuasive. Now, bear in mind, this is a white American who's writing this. He's no fan of Islam. And whether you agree with him or not, what he goes on to say is that Muhammad's followers are more zealous to obey him than the devotees of any other group, religious or otherwise. And they're like that on a mass scale. You might think of the odd group of zealots following people like David Koresh, you know, who give their lives for him, but it's not on the scale of Islam. You have millions of people five times a day bowing towards Mecca, the place of Muhammad's triumph in prayer. Number two on the list. Well, you guessed it, it's Isaac Newton, uh, the guy who gave us mass and science and gravity. Well, he didn't give us them, he didn't make it, he, he just realised how they all worked and put the system together. But to him, to Michael Hart, Jesus ranks number three. And he says something very interesting about Jesus and why he's not in the first two positions. He says, Jesus undoubtedly taught many wonderful and fantastic things, started a massive religion, got billions of followers down through the ages and through the world today. But he says that Jesus' followers obviously don't take his words as seriously as Muslims take Muhammad's words. And his great example of that is our passage from today. One verse from it, love your enemies. And do good to those who hate you, pray for those who persecute you. And he looks around the world at Christians and Christendom and Christian leaders and he thinks, who does that? Christians do none of those things. Now, my guess is that not many of us have experienced a true enemy, someone who just absolutely hates us and is out to ruin us and make our life a misery. But if you have had that or have that now, then you know the feelings that well up within, the desires for revenge, the hatred you feel back, the urge to lash out when you when you think of the name of that person or when you hear their name or you see them coming. Uh, the Israelites, you know, that would have been the Roman Empire to them. They were under occupation. They hated the, the oppressors. And, and if you've experienced that, you know exactly who that person is and, and I take it you know how difficult Jesus' words here are. For most of us, we can probably think of people we don't like that one much or don't agree with or maybe even make life tedious around the office or a family member, but we, we wouldn't necessarily call them enemies. But, but Jesus' words are, are just as applicable and, and they probably still make us just as uncomfortable. Love that person? Really, Jesus? And so either way, you're probably sitting there feeling the, the temptation to minimize, to domesticate, to reduce, subdue what Jesus says. So they don't ha- really have the same force that, well, he sounds like he's saying, which is precisely the reason that Michael Hart puts Jesus only as number three on his list of the hundred most influential people. 
You see, the natural reaction we all have when someone does something against us, whether it's deliberate or just accidental or something else, is to get them back. It's to lash out. It's to fight them. We instinctively love the idea of revenge and taking our pound of flesh. You know, imagine watching an Arnie movie and, you know, it's a great action movie and you get to the end and Arnie's finally, after all the hurdles, got the upper hand. He's pinned the bad guy to the wall just with one hand, lifted him off the ground, even though he's a 300-pound monster himself. (laughs) And he says to him, Bennett, I know you are a bad guy, but I forgive you. In fact, let me give you a massage. You go your own way and live a good life. I won't take revenge. That, that, That movie would just tank at the box office. People would be standing up, yelling for their money back at the door uh, because we want to see the bad guy get blown away. We want to see the hero win and we at least want to have the police come in and do something about it even if the hero won't. And that's what makes Jesus says so hard. It's not hard to understand his words, but it's hard because we don't naturally want to do it. It, it goes against every fibre of our being. And it's one of those miracles of God when we can come to grips with it and we start to learn how to live as Jesus tells us to here. Now, before we get into it, we've got to look at the context. Jesus, remember, has been swamped by crowds. They've come because he's a great healer. They've been bringing their, uh, their sick from their family, all from all over the place, from hundreds of kilometers. It's an international crowd. They've been flooding into the cities and he's withdrawn now to the country and up onto a hillside in order to teach his disciples. To teach them, if you want to be my follower, this is what life's going to look like. This is what the lifestyle of the kingdom of heaven is. This is how to be fishers of men. The Sermon on the Mount is, is discipleship training. This is, this is what Jesus wants from us, is how to be a follower of his. He's, he's not teaching them doctrine. He's not teaching them the doctrine of salvation or of the Holy Spirit or, or how predestination works or, or what heaven looks like. He, he's dealing with the character and lifestyle of his people and particularly how it is that we're to be different, different to everyone else. So different, in fact, that that will be like salt. And it hasn't lost its saltiness. It's just worthless and just blends in and bland. It's, we're like a, uh, to be like a, a light on a stand, not under a bowl, the light that's hidden, the light, the room, uh, or like a city on a hill, completely different to the way that the world operates, different in, in motivation. We, we do good, but we don't do it to get praise for ourselves. Jesus' disciples do it to, to bring praises to their Father in heaven. Remember back earlier in the chapter. And different in their standards. Jesus calls his disciples to have a righteousness that's far greater than even that of the Pharisees. Who, mind you, were the religious do-gooders who always kept the rules, who were always down on everyone else because they just lived so righteously. (laughs) But Jesus is calling us to a different righteousness, a a better righteousness, a bigger righteousness, one one that comes from the heart. That's not just about ticking off the the moral rule saying, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. It's one that wants to love God and serve him. A new heart that doesn't just refrain from murder, but refuses to hate. In fact, that seeks the good of the other person. And when there's a breakdown in relationships, seeks reconciliation and will do everything to, to restore the friendship. 
a new heart that doesn't just uh, mean we keep our pants zipped up and don't jump into bed with anyone we're not married to, but one that refuses to undress other people in our minds and, uh, and, and lust after them and doesn't seek to seduce and, and, and flirt. And you might have thought that was challenging enough already. And I know lots of people have been asking questions and doing some soul searching. And, and, and I hope that you know, you've come to a place where you're working on those things. But in our section today, Jesus moves on to something that's an even greater challenge in the way that we deal with people who hate us and who do evil to us. And just like with all those other examples, he starts off in familiar territory. Verse 38, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I assume that just like now, Jesus' hearers would have been nodding and thinking, yep, that, that, that sounds right. In fact, it's even biblical. It's in the law of Moses. Three times it turns up in the law of Moses. In Exodus 21, 23, two men are fighting and they accidentally injure a pregnant woman and maybe hurt the baby as well. They have to pay. They've got to pay an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Or Leviticus chapter 24, verse 20, if you injure someone else and maybe if you kill them, whatever injury you inflicted is the punishment that's due to you. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Or Deuteronomy 19, 21, if if there's a malicious witness who lies in court in order to get someone else found guilty of a crime they didn't commit and they're found out, the witness is found out, they are to pay whatever the punishment that was due for the crime they must, it must be inflicted on them. Whether it's life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Right? If that was what was due, that's what you received. And, and it sounds fair, doesn't it? In fact, there's a word we have for that. Justice. It's justice. The law, the law of Moses is upholding justice. But notice even before we get to Jesus, a couple of important things about, about those laws. First of all, they're, they're not commands to any one person to exact justice themselves. All of them are laws about what judges are to exact as punishment in each case. It, they're not about personal revenge or taking the law into your own hands. They've punched you, so you get to whack them straight back. They're all laws establishing what a judicial system should look like. In fact, what Israel's judicial system should look like. If you're watching the cutting room floor a couple of weeks ago, um, it's, it's civil law as opposed to moral law in terms of the threefold division of law, civil, moral and ceremonial. It's part of that civil law. This is how the nation is to operate. This is how the justice system. But notice, secondly, that the rules limit the damage of retribution. It, it limits it up and down. You can't, the judge can't say, well, uh, you took that guy's life, so pay me 10 bucks and you go, you're good. Or you really hurt that person, and so if you make them a peanut butter sandwich, it'll all be fair and square, right? So it limits it down, but it also limits it up. You can't take two eyes for one eye. It's just punishment. It's punishment that fits the crime. It's not like in Sharia law, where the thief who's stolen a loaf of bread has to have their hand chopped off. A hand is not a loaf of bread. It is completely unjust, unfair. Whereas the courts, the courts of God's people, are to act fairly and impartially. 
right? They, the judge can't just favour one and not favour another. He's got to act fairly and this is the system. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, hand for hand, foot for foot. But what do people do when they hear that that's in the law? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. They immediately want to use that themselves and take the law into their own hands. And, you know, we want to, and we feel totally justified when we do take revenge. We want people to suffer who's hurt us, right? And, and if we know we can't get away, we want someone else to make them suffer as well. You know, if it's the police or a friend, you know, your, your big brother's going to come and bash you up just like you were threatening to bash me up. But, but like every example so far that Jesus has given, Jesus, he's, he's like a black belt in verbal martial arts and he puts the moves on. He's going to sweep our legs from right under us. Hear what he's got to say. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, here's the leg sweep, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. He's not undermining the law of Moses at all. He's not attacking the judicial system and the way it should operate. But he's probing so deeply, isn't he, into our hearts. In fact, what he's doing is heart surgery on us. He's talking about us having a heart attitude that would be a miracle of God if we were to do it. A heart attitude that we're to have towards other people who deliberately hurt us or who take away from us. An attitude that doesn't just say, I won't fight back. It goes beyond that. It won't just say, I won't, I won't give as good as I got. I'm not going to demand my pound of flesh. I think if Jesus stopped there, maybe he'd find some willing hearts but he goes way further. He says, don't exact revenge. In fact, do the opposite. Give more than they've asked for. Give them your, your shirt as well as your coat. Give them, you know, walk two miles instead of the one they've asked you to. It's, it's totally um, counterintuitive and countercultural. And many people have said, well, maybe Jesus is just using a clever tactic to stop evil and it's a, it's about reverse psychology that's that's what jesus is saying surely that's it because you go two miles it will publicly embarrass them you know everyone will go oh man that's that's too much bullying that's going on it will shame them and they'll stop because what's what will be the fun of picking on someone weak who doesn't respond well i think people who say that obviously uh, haven't understood the joy and satisfaction that bullies get from what they do it's not going to stop them maybe once in a while, but that's not what Jesus means and it's not why Jesus said it. He's not teaching us to trick other people with mental gains and psychological tricks. It's completely something else. And you can tell that because of what he goes on to say next. And if you thought what he'd already said was hard to listen to, well, have a look at this, verse 43. You've heard it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. And I assume, just like before, that Jesus here is to be nodding and thinking, yeah, yeah, of course we've heard that. That's just, that's right, isn't it? Again, the first half, love your neighbor, that, that's even biblical. It's again from the law of Moses. And it doesn't seem too big a stretch to, to think that God could well have meant the second half, 
you know, hate your enemy because your neighbour is not your enemy. Surely that's the natural extension, but Jesus is just so clinical. He's so incisive. He's cutting off all attempts we might come up with to limit the law because my neighbour is my neighbour whether he likes me and helps me or whether he despises me and picks on me and badmouths me. And so he's dropping a bombshell in an already controversial talk. It's shocking. It's totally radical. And he says it so brilliantly, so starkly, that there's absolutely no room to wiggle out of what he says. You've heard it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And if you see, there's a footnote there, other older manuscripts uh, of the Bible, Jesus pushes even further. He says, bless those who cursed you and do good to those who hate you. What do you mean do good to them? Right? They've just hurt me. They've wounded me. They've always been picking on me. They've been after me. They've been made my life a misery. And you want me to go feed them when they're sick, you know, tend their wounds, pick up their children from school. How, how could you say that, Jesus? But Jesus is just saying, in regard to the person who's hated you and mistreated you and made your life a merry, don't just not hit back. Don't just give them more than they were taking. But in fact, treat them in the way that you wished they were treating you. In a way that's loving and kind, considerate, in a self-sacrificing kind of way. And by love, he doesn't mean you've got to adore them and kind of fawn over them and bat your eyelids and your heart's going to flutter as you time the world. He's not talking about Stockholm syndrome or anything like that. Uh, no, love is to seek someone's best. It's to seek their good. It's to do good for them. And you think, are you serious, Jesus? He, he can't be. How could he be? No way. I mean, possibly... Under the right sort of circumstances, in a very limited way, we could potentially show a little bit more care to people we don't have much to do with, right? Who we don't necessarily appreciate all that much, but come on, surely there's got to be limits to it. Surely there are people we could be excused by Jesus for not loving in that way. People who just don't deserve it. There's got to be restrictions. There's got to be circumstances that that Jesus meant to say or that got lopped off when Matthew didn't hear it and sort of just forgot to write that bit down. Something that must qualify it. But no, Jesus means what he says and he says what he means. There are no circumstances, there are no restrictions under which we as followers of Christ can get out of someone loving someone like that whether the person is a friend or a foe, whether it's a lover or an enemy, Jesus is telling us that love your neighbour, which the law commands, deep down at the heart level means love them even if they're haters who only do evil to us. Even in situations of great personal cost, even if they take everything from us, don't fight them, give them more, but more than that, love them do good to them, pray for them, bless them. Now, there's a great example of that kind of thing, of a Christian living that way in the the musical or the movie, if you're lowbrow like me, Les Miserables. If you've not seen it, uh, it's, it's a great story. 
And it's about a man named Jean Valjean who, at the start, he's a thief and, and he's staying with this priest and he decides to knock off all the silverware. In the middle of the night, he runs off having ripped off the priest, stolen all his goods and he's, you know, hot footing it down the road. The next day, the police catch up with him and, uh, they, they go to arrest him. He's there, got all this silverware that they know where it's from. But before they can drag him off to prison, the priest comes running up with with two silver candlesticks. And he says, Jean Valjean, Jean Valjean, you forgot to take these as well like I asked you to. And it's a very generous act. One that stops him being arrested and uh, one that saves him from rotting away in jail, which he would have done. One that he's very grateful for for the rest of his life. But it's exactly like what Jesus is saying. And to make the pointy end of the the stick even sharper, Jesus goes on. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. The tax collectors who everyone hates, they're the most miserable, scum-sucking mongrels out there, right, who are in bed with the enemy. Even they love those who love them. And if you greet only your brothers or sisters, what are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do that? The Gentiles, the the pagan people who don't even know God or love him, they know how to do good to their brothers and sisters and family and greet them well and only care for those who care for them. He says, if we only love those who love us, then we're going to be no different from the world. That is, we wouldn't be salt. We'd be salt that's lost its saltiness. We'd be a light that's under a bowl. We wouldn't be on a stand. We wouldn't be a city on a hill. The world says, love those who love you. The world says, scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. The world says, you look out for me, I'll look out for you. The world says, my love is totally conditional on whether you're nice to me and your attitude towards me and whether you're going to make me feel good. Jesus says, love unconditionally, without restriction without condition. And the question is, why? Why does he tell them to love like that? How could there be any good reason, Jesus, to say such a thing? And as I said, it's got nothing to do with reverse psychology. It's something else entirely. And Jesus tells us exactly the reason why we should love in the way that he says, why his disciples have to love the way that he says, from the heart. Not like the world. It's there. You see it? It's in verse 45. I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The reason that Jesus calls on us to love our enemies in this way is precisely, it's exactly because that's what God does. God doesn't say, well, you over there, you know, you're my friend, have some sunshine. You, you scum-sucking idiots over there, I hate you and you hate me, have a tornado. You know, the drought we've been in for several years now might teach us a lesson about dependence on God and, and there are many sins to be repented of as a society, that's to be sure. But, but God's still giving us sun and he's giving us rain and he's giving us cross and the dams are filling up. It's, 
It's not a bad day as we record this, but we cannot conclude because of that that Sydney is a righteous city, that it's blessed by God. It's, it's not a righteous city in any way. But it just goes to show how unfathomable, how outrageous God's love is, especially when we start to realise that the state of things is much worse than that. And we need to be very clear the natural state of humanity of people is as enemies towards God. We're enemies of God. Sydney, Sydney's in open rebellion against God. Right? It hates him. It hates God. It hates his ways. The city and its inhabitants, we're at war. And it's not a just that we're caught up in a war like a neutral country in a war between, say, God and the devil. You know, like we're not the Switzerland or the Sweden in that war. No, no, the war is between God and humanity. It's between God and people. It's between God and me. A war in which there can only be one winner because he is all-powerful. We might look like we're living at peace. Our country, our state, our, our city is in one of relative peace, of prosperity, of stability. You know, COVID may have put a dampener on things, but, you know, the economy will recover and the power's still on and the roads are still there, the, the trains are still running, everything goes on as if nothing's really wrong. But actually, in terms of spiritual realities, we live in a city where people are at war with their maker. That's the way the Bible describes it in James chapter 4. Anyone who is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And yet it's his enemies who God chooses to save and bestow his amazing kindness and mercy on. Christ came to save sinners. He didn't come to save the righteous people, the nice people, the the well-to-do people who need a little bit of help to to get on their way and to relate to him better. In Romans 5.10, it's why we were enemies that we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And so how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? It's his enemies that God offers forgiveness through the cross of Christ. It's his enemies that he pays an incredible price, the death of his son, in order to save. It's his enemies that we are reconciled to him. And so we're no longer enemies when we have Jesus. We become friends of God. We become children of God. We're reconciled to God. The old hymns capture it so well, don't they? Love's divine or love's excellent. Joy of heaven to earth come down. Or one of my favourites, Here might I stay and sing, No story so divine. Never was love, dear King, Never was uh, grief like thine. This is my friend, My friend indeed, In whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. And God is calling us who have been granted such tender mercy and forgiveness and love, who've experienced that love and experienced that reconciliation. He's calling us to, to act in the same way towards our enemies. Not because they'll necessarily change. Most likely they won't. Not because... <clears throat> Not because they won't slap us on the other cheek or kick us when we're down. They most probably will. In fact, let them. But do it because he has gladly accepted the loss himself 
and he wants us to be like him. Now that's a costly and a difficult thing which he's calling us to. And those of us who are in the midst of experiencing tremendous difficulty and with particular individuals, I'm not suggesting any of this is easy. Nor am I trying to belittle what you may be going through, the feelings that are going on in your heart. I have sat and cried with many people over broken relationships where the other person has refused to offer any relief. I, I, I know it's hard. And I'm not suggesting it'll ever be easy. It may do, and in God's kindness there may be relief and, and God may well change the person. But Jesus is clear here, it's not dependent on the responsiveness of the other person. It's not. It's because that's what God does to us and we're to be like him. So how do you do it? How, how would you even start? What, what does it look like to, to love your enemy like that? Well, Jesus gives us some very practical things to do. And, and if you don't know what else to do, here's, here's three things to begin with. They're all in verse 43, uh, if you include the footnote as well. The three things are bless, do good and pray. Bless, do good and pray. He says, bless, don't curse. Don't curse them behind their backs, but, but wish them well. Like really wish them well. Uh, speak kindly with them. Don't argue the toss every time. Don't tell them to go and get stuff. Genuinely, from the heart, want the best for them and tell them. So when your friends want to write them off and they tell you to get stuck into them, don't be a party to it. You know, you're standing around the coffee machine at work. Everyone's bitching about the boss or about that narky client or about that guy who doesn't fit in and everyone's just kind of... Uh, uh, he said, don't join in. You've got to bless and not curse. And so that's the first thing. The second one, number two, do good to them instead of evil. That means if they're, they're sick and they're going through some sort of distress that you know about, cook, cook them a meal. See if there's a way you can practically help them out. Do the shopping for them. Pick their kids up from school. Do good, whatever the cost. And lastly, he says, pray for them. Pray not only that they'll stop doing what it is they're doing and cease their hostility, but but pray for God's blessing on them. Pray for their relationship with God. Pray that they might come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Pray that they might have their sins forgiven. That's what Jesus did when he was on the cross. As he was hanging there, he said, Father, forgive them as they're butchering him, for they know not what they do. Pray that God would look after them in the way that you wish they were looking after you. Pray for their blessed and pray that God will bless for them and prosper them. Bless, do good, pray. Jesus didn't just kind of whack it out there, love them without telling us what to do. He tells us exactly what to do. It's radical. It's difficult. It's incredibly practical. But Jesus wants radical disciples who not live the way of the world, but will be completely different from it. They will live his way and glorify him, be, be like our heavenly father, salt in a saltless world, light in the darkness, like a city on a hill, living the way of our father in heaven, not to bring praise and honor to ourselves, but that others might see our good deeds and praise our father in heaven. 
living in such a way as to bring glory in everything that we do and say to him. Let's pray. Father, these are tremendously challenging words that expose our world and our hearts. And we instinctively, like with all that Jesus said, want to react against them. But Father, please give us new hearts that want to live your way, that want to be like you, that see the cost but pay it anyway. We thank you for your incredible mercy on your enemies, on us in the Lord Jesus, that you gave your only son to die when we, your enemies, despised you and hated you and you loved us anyway. And we thank you for the way you've brought us into friendship with you and you've called us out of the world to be different to the world. And so we pray as we live in the world but are not of the world that we might live differently, we might stand out, particularly in this way. Help us to do good even when we don't want to. Help us to love when we want to hate. Help us to pray for the people who hurt us rather than taking our pound of flesh. Father, we pray that we might do this for your glory and honour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.